Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to consider today the first nine verses in this book and in this chapter. And the message is entitled, Rogue Living and a Righteous Response. Rogue Living and a Righteous Response. There was a news report just this week by NBC News entitled, A Colossal Elevator to Space could be going up sooner than you ever imagined. Researchers are racing to make this science fiction idea a reality. Here's how the report reads. For more than half a century, rockets have been the only way to go to space. But in the not too distant future, we may have another option for sending people up to space and payloads up to space. A colossal elevator extending from Earth's surface up to an altitude of 22,000 miles where geosynchronous satellites orbit. NASA says the basic concept of a space elevator is sound, and researchers around the world are optimistic that one can be built. The Obayashi Corporation, a global construction firm based in Tokyo, says they'll have one built by 2050, and China wants to build one by 2045. Now an experiment to be conducted soon aboard the International Space Station will help determine the real-world feasibility of a space elevator. Professor of Physics at City College of New York, Michio Kaku, says the space elevator is the holy grail of space exploration. Imagine pushing the up button of an elevator and taking a ride into the heavens. It can open up space to the average person. I'm reminded of the words of wisdom in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. The text before us today in Genesis 11 reminds us just that. It was an attempt by people to build a city for themselves and a tower up into the heavens. After the flood and after the deliverance of God among Noah and his family, the people spread and they went into the land of Shinar. And before that, they were living in the Mesopotamian region and they settled eventually in this place that the scripture calls the land of Shinar. The population of the earth was growing and everybody was speaking the same language. The people decided to build a tower that would reach into the heavens, essentially so that they would be like God. And God was not pleased with their pride, so he confused their language and he scattered them. Our focus today is rogue living and a righteous response. I'm using the word rogue to indicate an independence, a self-centered, self-focused, prideful, rebellious way of living where people do their own thing in their own time without consideration for God or without an ultimate consideration of the outcome or the consequences. After all, the very nature of sin is that sin is independence apart from God. It was in the Garden of Eden that the serpent told Eve, you will be like God, you will know good and evil. God had told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
but they wanted to, in their own minds, be like God. It seems like a commendable ideal, but the wrong part of the ideal was that their motivation was independence. Oswald Chambers said sin is the fundamental relationship not only of wrongdoing, but of wrong being. It is the deliberate and determined independence from God. The Christian faith bases everything on that extreme. It's that idea that there's this self-confident, rebellious spirit that seeks independence from God and our own standing without him. And if it were not for God making his own son to be sin for us, we could not be the righteousness of God in him. Without God intervening in our independence, we would not understand what it means to know God and to have eternal life. So let's consider this passage here beginning in verse 1. And your subheading that was added later, of course, may say the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babylon. Either would be correct because it's, in essence, the location. And here's what the scripture says. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babel or Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Notice first, the intention of people is to make a name for themselves. The intention of people is to make a name for themselves. God created all people as the account of Genesis 1 and 2 records. And as we come through the book of Genesis up to chapter 10, which precedes this account that we just read, we find in Genesis chapter 10 what is referred to as the table of the nations. It is the account of the nations and how they came into being and how they were dispersed on the earth. The table of nations is the oldest ethnological information that is available to us. It helps us understand the ethnic and the linguistic situation after the worldwide flood. The names in the chapter that precede the story that we just read have been corroborated in the books that follow in the Old Testament, as well as by archaeological discoveries that have been made over the years. The story in Genesis 11 explains how God dispersed the nations and why he did it. We think about chapter 10 and chapter 11, it's not necessarily a chronological unfolding. Many Bible scholars believe that chapter 10 is actually the result of chapter 11, but we're given it here in this context and in this way. 
But at any rate, however we view the chronology of chapter 10 and chapter 11, we would agree with what the scripture teaches here about the condition of the earth before the scattering of the nations. Verse 1 tells us the whole earth had the same language and the same vocabulary. Now I want you to imagine just for a moment having the ability to talk to every single person on the planet in a common language. Not only with the same language, but also the same vocabulary. We're well aware that although we are native English speakers, English itself has a tremendous amount of variety with vocabulary that is used around the world. So British English would vary from American English, and English as a second language would vary, and depending on what part of even our own country you live in, you would find words and phrases that are different in terms of the vocabulary. But these people, they had the same language, and they also had the same vocabulary. I'm told that currently in the world, approximately 17% of the world speaks English. Many of those are not native English speakers. They are English as a second language in places where English is used as a common language of trade and of communication. But about 17% of the world speaks English. And with the first language and second language speakers, it would make English the most spoken language barely on the face of the planet, with Mandarin Chinese being a close second. As a first language, Mandarin Chinese is by far the most prominent language in the world. And beyond that, there are a multitude of languages that are spoken. But then they had the ability to speak to everybody. Same language, same vocabulary. Verse 2 says, as the people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and they settled there. After sin had entered the world and the fall of man took place, God drove man out of the Garden of Eden. Separation was a consequence of sin and rebellion against him. And God placed cherubs at the east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way into the garden, to keep man from coming back into the garden and to the tree of life. He also placed there a flaming sword to guard the way. Also shortly after, Cain went out from God's presence and lived in the land of Nod, located also east of Eden. So the people gathered there initially, and then after the worldwide flood, Noah began to repopulate the area of Mesopotamia, and then now we find them migrating to this place called the land of Shinar. In the land of Shinar, the people came together and decided to build themselves a city And not only a city, they were going to build themselves a tower. According to verses 3 and 4, they were going to use oven-fired bricks and mortar to do that. And they said, let us build a city and a tower that reaches into the sky. Essentially, they're trying to get to heaven on their own. They're trying to build a tower for themselves that would exert their independence and show their intelligence and reach to a place that only God abides. Archaeologists have discovered a number of these ziggurat towers that were attempted to be made in history. There are some 30 that have been located and excavated in the Mesopotamian Valley region of 
Babylon and Sumer and Assyria. Uh, ziggurats were built in a stacked form. They would basically take the shape of a square or perhaps a rectangle, and there would be blocks with mortar, and they would build them up successively as high as they possibly could. Many of those ziggurat towers would have stairways around the perimeter so that the people could ascend the ziggurat tower to the top. And at the top, there would be an altar, and there idolatrous worship would take place. It's said that much of the worship, according to archaeologists, believe was centered on the zodiac signs because they were worshiping nature and they were worshiping the signs and the seasons and they were wrapped up in idolatry in their focus of worship. And people climbed those towers in order to get closer to the gods. Now make note here that the purpose of the people building a city and a tower in the land of Shinar was to make a name for themselves. That's what verse 4 indicates. They came together to build this city and to build this tower for the glory of man. It was their intent that they would be known, that they would make a name for themselves and that they would leave their mark. See, what happens because of pride, with pride being the root of all sin, pride being the reason for the fall of Lucifer from heaven to begin with and then sin entering into the garden is that pride causes a person to have too high of a view of themselves. Humility by definition is having a right view of yourself, having a proper perspective of who you are. But pride causes you to see yourself as something that you are not. And the Bible says that the proud are so focused on themselves that their thoughts are far from God. Who has time to think of God when you're thinking about yourself? And through the Bible, we are warned of the consequences of pride. Proverbs 16 and verse 18 and 19 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor man than to divide the spoil with the proud. So throughout history, it's been marked by people who want to make a name for themselves out of selfish pride. And I want to make a bold statement this moment in terms of the culture that we currently find ourselves living in. I believe that in some ways, social media, as good and as helpful and as fun and as interconnected as it helps us to be in this world, Social media may be the modern-day Tower of Babel where we are tempted to make a name for ourselves. We are tempted to present ourselves to the world however we want the world to perceive us. Whatever image we want people to think about us in, however we want to portray ourselves, we can carefully construct this image where people think one thing about us, whether or not that's truly who we are. On an online platform called Digital Media, kind of bland, but that's what it is, there was a piece entitled, How to Brand Yourself Like a Politician. And they gave a step-by-step outline of how you can brand yourself like a politician. Develop a purpose statement. Make yourself memorable. Research your audience. Get involved in your community. Find promotional opportunities. Master social media and utilize your friends and your family for leverage 
so that you can brand yourself like a politician. Too many people these days are doing just that. And we would say that it's for interconnectedness and relationships. But if we're not careful, we can be just like the people in Genesis chapter 11 whose primary concern was making a name for themselves. That was what they were focused on. Pride attempts to steal the glory that belongs only to God and keep it for ourselves. Pride at its core is self-worship rather than worship of God. And the concern of the people further, according to verse 4, was they would be scattered throughout the earth. God gave Noah and his sons the commandment in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1 to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, to scatter among the creation, if you will. And yet their desire was to stay together in prideful disobedience to God. So pride says, I know better than God knows. Pride says, what I value is most important. Pride says what my image is, is what I should be focusing on and putting my energy into. And regardless of what God has commanded, I know best. And that's exactly the circumstance these people were in. And I challenge you today to resist the temptation to pridefully make a name for yourself. Don't fall in to the river of pride that is flowing so strongly in this age that we live in. Follow instead the uh, example of our Lord. The one you remember who left the glory of heaven and came to the mess of this world. The one who left the perfection of, of fellowship with his Father in heaven and was willing to come and to get involved in the chaos of this sinful world that we live in. And it was our Lord who told us in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, take up my yoke and learn from me. And listen to how he describes himself. He says, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And he said, if you will take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, you will find rest for yourselves. So resist the age that says to you, it's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about my self-centeredness. It's all about my goals and my desires. And look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, and follow his humble example that is countercultural to the age that we live in. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Paul's telling us in a nice way, get over yourselves. And look to God because he's given you a measure of faith by which you should live your lives. While the intention of people is to make a name for themselves, the intention of God is to make his glory known. The intention of people is to make a name for themselves, but the intention of God is to make his glory known. And it is in direct competition for people to be attempting to make a name for themselves when God is intending to make his glory known. And you see where the clash comes here. And the people already were in a similar place that the condition of the world was in before the worldwide flood. 
You remember how God described it? It says in Genesis 6 and verse 5 that God saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And yet here we are because of this root of sin that is even still in the heart of the people who were spared. In this prideful temptation that has already taken root again and they're in the same situation they were in before. And the people were united in language and in purpose. God came down to evaluate the situation. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. Note here that the irony is the tower was so short, the Lord had to stoop down to investigate it. How many times in our lives do we attempt to make a name for ourselves and we're going to leave a legacy for ourselves and and we believe that we are indispensable and people need us and without us nothing would go forward and we put all this energy and all this effort into making a name for ourselves and the Lord stoops down as it were and says, what are you doing? What even are you thinking that you would attempt to do such a thing? God sees your heart. God sees your motivation. God sees your actions. You can successfully build a brand for yourself or portray an image of yourself so that people would think well of you. We are particularly tempted toward this in the church because pride can so easily root itself in self-righteousness And we can outwardly be doing the right things, but inwardly be somebody far different. And the Bible calls that hypocrisy. Hypocrites. People who would say one thing and present one image, but be somebody very different in the core of their heart and their being. And we can hide nothing from God because God is the one who searches our lives. God is the one who sees into our heart. God is the one who sees into the depths of the recesses of our souls. And he knows exactly what we do, but he also knows why we do it. God knows if you are self-focused on making a name for yourself. And nothing is hidden from God. He knows all things. This is a strong reminder as well that this is not some deistic God that is disconnected from the world. He's not, as the old illustration goes, the watchmaker who has simply wound the watch up and let time progress as it will, uninterested and uninvolved in his creation. Yes, God is transcendent in the sense that he is wholly other. He is powerfully different from who we are but at the same time he's not only transcendent he's also imminent he is directly engaged in his creation but not just in the laws that he created or the natural order that he has created he is involved in every detail of his world and particularly so in the lives of people who have been created in his image and the lord was not pleased with what he found. Verse 6 says, if they've begun to do this as one people all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God recognized the situation at the moment. 
He knew the tremendous capacity that he had created human beings with. And he recognized that there was a problem at hand. Man thought he was building a city that was without end. He was going to build a tower up into the heavens that they were going to make a name for themselves. And God says, not so fast. Psalm 2 and verse 1 and following says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth take a stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let's break their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh and the Lord will have them in derision. The intention of people to make a name for themselves is in opposition to the glory of God. The intention of God is to make his glory known. The purpose of God's creation from the beginning was for his glory. The reason that he would speak creation into being and make all of the beautiful things that he has made. The reason that he would give life to man and make him from the dust of the ground and create him in his image would so that his glory would be made known. That's the purpose. So anything that takes us away from the glory of God being made known is contrary to the plan of God. And the glory of God is our chief focus in life. It's not to make a name for ourselves. It's not to promote all of the good things that we're doing. It's not to get our way on the earth. It is to make the glory of God known. That's the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. John Piper wrote, The glory of God is the beauty and excellence of his manifold perfections. It is an attempt to put into words what God is like in his magnificence and purity. It refers to his infinite and overflowing fullness of all that is good. God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one infinitely beautiful and personal being. People were created from the beginning in the image of God to display the glory of God. And anything that competes with that is sin. Anything that competes with that is rebellion against God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, do it all for the glory of God. The glory of God is a measure for us uh, to look at and to gaze upon and to meditate on and to read about in the scripture, to pray about and to understand and to be so captured with who God is that everything else fades. See, that's the problem in this life is that we get so myopic and we get so focused on the moment in the here and now that we lose sight of the glory of God. And it's the glory of God that keeps the church focused because we're moving forward and we have an end eventually and it's going to be to be in the presence of God and to enjoy Him forever and to exalt His glorious name. That's who we are. And anything else in the church is contrary to that. If it's not focused on bringing God glory and exalting His great name and making Him known, then it's going to fall pitifully and woefully short of who God intends us to be. The intention of God is to display His glory. And then third, the indictment against rogue living ends in judgment. The indictment against rogue living ends in judgment. God does not allow perpetual rebellion without bringing it to an end 
or without bringing judgment to bear on the situation. Yes, God does permit at times in his sovereign will and providence people to go their own way and to bring what they're doing to a conclusion. And it seems like God is not watching or God is not going to hold them accountable. But ultimately, there's an end for every person because life on this earth is over. And then we're accountable to God in eternity. And God would not allow these people to carry out their plans. So he says in verse 7, Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Let me translate this for you here. The triune God had had enough. He was done with the situation. He said, they're seeking to make a name for themselves. I stooped down. I've evaluated the situation. I've considered what's going on. I've looked at the circumstances. And now judgment is going to come because of the rogue living of these people. There's an accounting that's going to take place. So the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, having confounded their language, and they stopped building the city. The principle we need to note here is that judgment results in condemnation for sin. There is accountability to this glorious and holy God. And we are all familiar, most likely, with John 3.16, that God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But oftentimes we proclaim John 3.16 without also understanding the truth of John 17, verse 17 and verse 18 in John chapter 3. And here's what it says. God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world. Some people stop there. They put the period there. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. And that's true but that the world might be saved through him. But then here's the other part of this passage. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. So the truth of the scripture here is that, yes, Jesus did not have to come to condemn the world because if we've not believed in him, we are already condemned. It's our sin that has placed us under the judgment of a holy God. It's our sin that will bring a day of accountability. And at the root of all of it is unbelief. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of understanding of the grace of God. And judgment will result ultimately in separation from God. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden. That's what will happen to every person who doesn't believe and receive the grace and the forgiveness of God. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8 and 9 says, God will take vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. The separation that comes because of sin is the most awful thing that hell could have to offer. Just knowing that there was this great God who had created the world in all of its beauty and in keeping with his glory as a demonstration of his great power. And that this great God who has done all these things has extended his grace to us so that we might know him and so that we might have everlasting life. And to harden our hearts and to turn away from that because of our sinful rebellion and to go our own way and to seek independence and to ultimately end up in hell separated from God is the most awful thing that could ever happen to anybody. 
And that should burden us for the lost. That if we've been rescued and we've been delivered from darkness to light and from hell to heaven, if we've been delivered from hopelessness to hope, and we've been delivered from spiritual death to spiritual life, we should proclaim that with all of our hearts. That we should be burdened for those who are on their way to an eternity separated from God. How could we sit in the church week after week, having received all of these blessings and all of these promises, and then walk out the doors and act like somehow we deserved them? You say, well, preacher, that's not my attitude. It may not be your attitude, but it's your action if you're not sharing your faith. It reveals what you really care about. So this morning in that simple exercise that I gave you to write down the name of someone that you know that is far from God, that was not a nice spiritual exercise so we could walk out of here and feel better about ourselves and take that little piece of paper and slide it into the Bible and be done with it for the week. That was so that our hearts might be burdened because we recognize the judgment that is coming upon every person who has not experienced the grace of God through his son. And the Bible teaches us that final judgment from God cannot be avoided. Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Every single person who has ever lived or who ever will live, will have an appointment with God. God sets the time. God marks it on the calendar. God knows the exact moment when that appointment will come. And would it not make sense to us that we would prepare for the appointment? If you had an important engagement in this life, let's say, for example, a work obligation that you had and your boss had asked you to make a presentation and you were to come at a certain time and that was your appointment to be able to prepare whatever it was that you've been given the responsibility for, would you show up at that appointment unprepared? That would be unwise. And that pales in comparison to your eternal appointment with God. And thankfully, it's not what we do that makes us prepared for that appointment. It is who we are in Jesus Christ when we've turned from our sins and we've turned to him as our Savior. It's because mercy has walked into our lives, even though we stood guilty. We were deserving of any punishment God would give us. We were deserving of any eternal destination that we would arrive upon in our sin. There is None worthy, no, not one. But yet God has given us grace through his son, Jesus. And because of faith in Jesus, his blood is applied to our lives and we are justified. We are declared righteous. So that one day when we stand before a holy God in that appointment that God alone has set, he will look at us, not through our sin, he will look at us through the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And we will be accepted eternally into his presence. That's the gospel. That's why why it's good news. If I had to go and appear at my own appointment on my own merits, I would be finished. I would have no hope. I would have nothing to offer. But yet in Christ, I have everything. And I wonder today, are you prepared for that appointment with God.
Are you ready to meet the one who has made you? Are you ready to enter into his glorious presence? The indictment against rogue living ends in judgment. And either you will pay the penalty for your own sins, the wages of sin is death, or your penalty will have been satisfied in Christ, who is the gift of God, who is eternal life for his people. Now God says here in this passage in Genesis 11, this is only the beginning of what they will do. You think God knows a little something about the sinful capacity of people? You think God has some insight into what would come in the future? Remember, there's nothing new under the sun, but I do believe that we are either in or approaching another Tower of Babel era of history. Again, an online platform entitled Big Think told of the Humai company. Now bear in mind, these examples that I'm about to share with you are not people sitting in their basements with tinfoil hats. These are people who are purportedly mainstream and attempting things that are beyond comprehension. This Humai Corporation or company is a startup, listen to this, that promises immortality through artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and cloning. You think that's crazy? You ever heard of Dolly the sheep? Some of these things are already in motion. And then they said, Humai wants to download your consciousness and transfer it to a new body so you can live forever. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Or what about the University Observer in the piece entitled The God Complex, Will Humans Ever Manufacture Life? Written by Orla Chiavani. The power that scientific advances have given us would have seemed supernatural, even godlike, only a century ago. We can talk to people on the other side of the world, translate any language into our own, access a million libraries worth of information in seconds, and carry the tools to do all of this in our pockets. Not even science fiction can imagine the sorts of abilities we take for granted every day. But then listen to what, he said, what she says. Despite all our progress, there are still mysteries that the greatest minds in the world are yet to figure out. A major one being the origins of life itself. Now hear this. Although countless theories have been debated... Nobody has ever managed to create a living thing completely from scratch. I got news for you. Our great God has. He's the one who holds eternity in his hands. He's the one in whom we should place our faith and trust. Because there's coming a time on that timeline of history as we would think about it when the triune God will have had enough and he will turn to his right hand and he will say to the son, it's time.
and Jesus will return. You see, before us is rogue living contrasted with the righteousness of God. Rogue living ends in destruction. The righteousness of God ends in life and life eternal. Do you know him? Christian, are you spending your life trying to make a name for yourself? Or are you proclaiming the glory of our great God? Unbeliever, do you really want to appear before the God who has given you physical life unprepared and lost in your sin? Or do you want to enter into the eternal presence of God having been forgiven, rescued, redeemed, and made righteous in Christ? Today would be a good day to take that step of faith and say, I want to come and follow Jesus. I want to know that my heart and my soul is right with God. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment. Father, we thank you for your word and the clarity of it. As we look far into the past, you've given us the ability here in your word to see what's coming in the future in the sense of anticipating how much worse things could get before Jesus comes back. And we long for the return of Jesus. Our prayer today would be even so, come, Lord Jesus. We want to be a people who are anticipating the reward for your glory because we have longed for the returning of Jesus. We've anticipated it. We've lived in such a way that we have a holy anticipation of the things that are to come. Father, forgive us for trying to make a name for ourselves. There's not a person in this room that hasn't done something to draw attention to themselves rather than attention for you. I've been guilty of it myself, Lord, where I would present myself in such a way that I would want people to think well of me, which comes up as pride in my heart. Lord, I confess that is sin. Help us all to say Christ is enough and to mean it. Not just to mean it, but to live it. I pray for any here now who have heard this message or who will hear this message even in the days to come that they would see the beauty of Christ, the hope of the gospel, that there's a Savior who rescues from sin and delivers to eternal life with God. We would rejoice today with the angels in heaven if there be even one person who would come and follow Jesus at the convicting call of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we give this time of close and response over to you as we sing. May our hearts be focused on who you are and use us this week to make you known and to make your name known and not our own. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will.